This podcast is supported by an educational grant by Bosch Health, made available through the CDA Corporate Supporter Program. Hi, and welcome back to JCMS Author Interview Podcasts. I'm Kirk Barber, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Cutaneous Medicine and Surgery. On this episode, we're going to highlight the 50th anniversary of the Canadian Dermatology Foundation. In our September-October 2019 issue, we highlighted work by Dr. Niedeschke and co-authors. The article was titled, Immunotherapy for Cutaneous T-Cell Lymphoma, Current Landscapes and Future Developments. I'm happy that Dr. Niedeschke is here with me today to discuss his research. Well, thank you, Robert, for uh, being with me. Thank you. Um, I'm really keen to hear how your group got together and put together this forward-looking uh, article on the immunotherapy of cutaneous T-cell lymphoma. Oh, as you and some other people may know, lymphoma has been my interest for, well, most than, than a decade. Uh, I have been fascinated by the disease and researching the disease from different angles, both, both the basic science and also uh, clinical research. So we came to the idea about this article because our recent research pointed out at the immune system to be an important part of the anti-tumor response in mycosphangoides. Uh, I have a very talented student who did some genomic research and we found out that lymphoma is very heterogeneous. So actually we think about as one tumor, but in fact there are hundreds of tumors uh, in one patient. And we wanted to know how the immune system can handle this and why we have been so far unsuccessful with the immunotherapy approaches. So, so far, you know, when I look back over the advances in, uh, in the treatment of CTCL, it's a, there haven't been many. Um, uh, we're still so, using the same skin-directed treatments mm-hmm. for the majority of the disease we treat, the phototherapy mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. Yes. And, um, and I get the impression from reading your article that, that you know, we've always talked about the T-cell, and we've looked at it in psoriasis, we're looking at eczema, um, and we're kind of learning all about it in the tumor world again. And uh, I would guess that, uh, um, you know, the T-cell is something, do you have it on a little picture in your office or on your license plate? I mean, you, the T-cell has to be all in, involving mm-hmm. for you because it, it's so many machinations of it, if you will. Yes, well, uh, it's even more complicated because here we are talking about the tumor who is derived from the T-cells and the T-cells as well that fight the tumor. So um, the issue is very complex and for many, many years people have difficulties in separating those two types of cells. Uh, so we're lucky and we found out how you can actually measure the amount of reactive T-cells and the neoplastic T-cells in the mix in the skin. And uh, interestingly enough, um, even in established tumors, the population of malignant cells is much smaller than the population of infiltrating cells. But for many reasons, the infiltrating cells are not able to fight the tumor. They can probably keep it at bay, they can keep it low so the tumor is not developing um, in a very fast way, but uh, nevertheless, it's not able to remove the neoplasia completely. In your article, you refer to progressive immune system exhaustion. 
precisely as being the primary sort of driver of these tumors. Is it do the do these regulatory or these normal T cells just get tired? Well, yes. So I think this is very multifactorial what we're looking at. In the beginning, in the skin, we have a lot of immune cells, but for some reasons they are not able to react well against lymphoma cells, probably because some of those goes into like a artificial senescence. So they think that they have played the role and they don't need to react against the tumor anymore. While disease progresses, we see more and more systemic immunosuppression, uh, which is happening on different levels. And one of the levels I was interested in was to see at the um, variety of the T cells. And if you follow the patients over years, you will see that the number of different T cells decreases in the periphery, which means that your repertoire of T cells is getting smaller and smaller, and you have less choice how you can react against the tumor. So your work now looks like it's, well, it's got all kinds of ways to attack mm -hmm. this mechanism. Is it trying to stimulate those cells? Is it trying to change how they behave? Uh, what sort of direction are you going in? Is of course, you know, 15 years ago, there was no way how we could change the immune system. But now with the arrival of immune checkpoint inhibitors, which can unblock those senescent and non-reactive T cells, there is a new opportunity. So this is what we want to do now. We want to actually to see how we can stimulate the immune response. One of the possibilities is the immune checkpoint inhibitors, which were also highlighted in the articles. Um, experience so far has not been great. Uh, studies have been small on few patients. A response rate has been very variable from like 15% to maybe 50%. So we don't really know where we are. So one of the points of the research to understand why it's not such a big success as we had in melanoma, for example. And I think our research kind of pointing into the heterogeneity of the tumor as one of the major factors that play a role and limit the success and utility of immune checkpoint inhibitors. To where, with this sort of momentary pause and that sort of investigation, what's n what are next steps? What what sort of things are you looking at in your lab today, if uh, you can share some of that with us? Well, first of all, you know, some patients respond, and uh, it is interesting, can we predict who is the responder and who is not a responder? Uh, we have some clues from other cancers. So, for example, if you look at some solid cancers, like pancreatic cancer, Immune checkpoint inhibitors are useful in a subgroup of patients uh, that demonstrate something called microsatellite instability. It means that the rate of mutations in those tumors is very, very high. So usually you will say mut mutation is a bad thing. So the bigger rate of mutation, the worse it will be. Actually, it's the opposite, because when the tumor mutates, it produces a lot of new antigens, a lot of new proteins, and those are easy to recognize by the immune system. Now, when we do the same in CTCL, the article is now in, uh, still in review, but we're looking at the load of mutations in our patients, and it varies vastly from a couple thousand mutations per tumor to as many as over 20,000 mutations. So we kind of hope that those high-load mutation tumors might be a better responders to immune checkpoint inhibitors. So they can be a genetic subgroup of patients who respond uh, favorably versus maybe those who will not. And if you can isolate those patients 
and run clinical trials on this subgroup, the results might be maybe much more optimistic. You referred me to to one of your uh, new published article in Blood that yes. uh, that your group had had, yeah. had worked on it, and that was another novel concept that you're bringing forward. Can you can you help us to understand that? Well, yes. I th- you mentioned in the beginning that nothing much happened in the um, uh, therapy of lymphoma, and we are still using skin directed therapies like phototherapy or radiation, electron beam, of course, and so on and so forth. Uh, because we had this very strong belief that CTCL originates from the skin. It's called primary cutaneous for, no, for some reason. Primary cutaneous, we understand as mythologies that CTCL comes from the lymphocyte within the skin. We have to show that this is not true, that the true precursor of CTCL is already there in the blood and has been there for years, if not decades. And for some reason that we don't understand, those cells choose to go to the skin and develop further. So even though that we can treat the entire skin, remove every tumor cell from the skin, there will still be influx from the blood replenishing those tumors in the skin. And this is what we observe precisely in the clinic. So you can, you know, basically clear the patient with electron beam. There will not be a single tumor cell and then just wait six months and tumor is relapsing, so we think it's a it's a mechanism of relapse. Of course, we'd love to know more about those precursors and be able to target them, but right now, unfortunately, it's research is so new that we don't know how they look like and we don't know their surface markers. We've only d- discovered them by genetic analysis of the blood. So it's it's like it's a multifocal disease. So these are sort of each plaque, for example, in mycosis fungoides, is every plaque that we see then sort of a metastatic tumor, if you will? Yeah, you, you can call it that, you know. So always since I started doing research on this, I wonder why is the tumor coming in many places at the same time? It's not compatible with the skin precursor, because if you had something in the skin, you should first have a small tumor that will grow into the big, and then eventually it will metastasize. Like we see with melanoma, we see primary melanoma growing, going to lymph nodes and other organs. But it's not the case with CTCL, because even early stage patients who have tumors starting on the trunk, buttocks, uh, thighs, and all those places. So how is this possible that you can generate tumor in many places at the same time in the skin? So the answer to this is that you have the circulating precursor that simply goes to different niches in the skin and um, and creates a visible disease. Now, another thing is, you know, we found out that, as you say, um, those precursors, it's not one cell clone. There are multiple clones. And because multiple clones can see different places of the skin, every plaque is slightly different from the other one. And it's also something we see in the clinics. We treat the patients. Some plaques are resistant and some disappear. So we'd like to study this, of course, and see what is the base of this resistance. Yeah, of course. And, and the other thing is recurrence is often in the same area, if not in the, the identical plaque. Mm-hmm. Um, with it coming back where it's cha- it transforms itself from plaque stage to tumor stage. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. So the, so the signaling, so, so the thought is that this may not be a skin disease, although we direct our therapy there because that's all we have to do. Yes, it's, it's um, well, it is and it is not a primary cutaneous lymphoma. So it is primary cutaneous in a way 
that the manifestation always starts in the skin. So even though you have the circulating clone in the blood for years, this clone is clinically silent. doesn't mean anything. It's probably mutated. It is there. Once it gets the ability to go to the skin, the true clinical disease starts. And it may seem, seem strange that you have this mutating clone in the blood and we are still healthy, but we know from other diseases like myelodysplastic syndromes, this is the case as well. You can have this malignant clone sitting there for decades and nothing happens. Suddenly a disaster occurs and the patient gets a disease. So this is a fascinating kind of model, you know, that you can have mutated clone. Probably I have a mutated clone, you know, and nothing really happens. And at some point, you know, uh, some point an event event happens that that uh, makes this clone go to the niche and develop into the into the malignancy. So to focus for one second on this niche, I'm, I'm assuming there are people working on that concept because what we're learning about vitiligo is it's this the keratinocyte that probably is the trigger for um, the destruction of the melanocyte. And it's going to be, and the keratinocyte is probably in psoriasis, the thing that triggers psoriasis. So we've gone through with psoriasis, we went through Mm -hmm. skin disease, immune disease. Now I think we're coming back to skin disease. Yes. What kind of investigations are going on with the skin? to try and dis- define this niche that you uh, that you mentioned? So very, very little, and I would, I would like to do this as the, my next step in this, in this journey <laughs> into the pathogenesis of uh, CTCL, because I think understanding the niche is the key. And why do I think so? Because the clinical observations, I'm a clinician, I like, always like to look at the patients. So, Look what we teach our residents about CTCL. It almost always starts in sun-protected areas. So what is special about sun-protected areas? Connective tissue is different. You know, the, the skin is not sun-damaged. Collagen is different. So there must be something there. Right? So the niche is different than in, like, in the face or the hands, where CTCL almost never starts, at least not macroesphangoides. The second observation is, you know, back in Europe when I when I originally come from, we did a lot of radiotherapies and we even did radiotherapy of CTC in our department. So we had a small machine and we irradiated the tumors. Interestingly enough, the tumor never recurs in the site of radiation. So when you produce the radiation scar, there's almost never a relapse there. Okay, so the tumor can relapse around the scar, but almost never inside. So by modifying the skin niche against the connective tissue, you are making this impossible to inhabit by the tumor. So if you could find a smarter way of doing this, not radiating the patient and causing a lot of damage, but maybe by some drugs and modification of the of the um, uh, of uh, of the this milieu of this of this niche, this would be a great way of treating lymphoma because we'll just chase those cells back from the skin to the circulation where they cannot develop and they cannot survive. Fascinating. And when I think back to learning about basal cells and back to the beginning of of my education, Mm -hmm. it was the stroma Mm -hmm. that was discussed as being the Mm -hmm. the reason for for the proliferation of these cells. And here we are looking at yet another tumor system. Well, if if you even think, you know, skin is not just one niche. Skin actually is at least two, right? This will be your epidermis 
and your deramis, and they're very different. One is ectodermal, one is mesodermal, they look differently, there are different cells. If you look at the CTCL, there is actually a nice model because in many instances you can see the cells seeding the epidermis, which we know as pottria and microabscesses, and then you can also see the tumor in the dermis. So we actually looked into this and we microdissected, isolated those cells from the epidermis and cells from the dermis and looked at the similarities and differences. And I can tell you they are genetically two different populations. So it's not true that pottery abscesses are formed by just infiltration of the epidermis from the dermis. It's actually an independent seeding event that creates that creates a niche in the epidermis and allows the tumor cells to develop there. It's a different species of tumor cells. Okay. So even within a microscopic uh, compartment like the skin, you still can see different populations in different places, which uh, unfortunately shows also a complexity of the disease and you know the, there is no simple answers to this. We have to probably attack and understand how the cells home to different areas of the skin to be able to treat it uh, effectively. It uh, must be very frustrating for you to take all this knowledge that you're developing about the T-cell and walk into your clinic and, and not be able to manipulate it in some way to help the patients that come to see you with that have the CTCL in your lymphoma clinic. Well, yeah, I have been frustrated by lack of treatments. You are right. Especially in Canada, we have a, you know some treatments are not available. Like here in Alberta, electron beam is very difficult to access. It hopefully will change soon, but still we have to send patients somewhere else. Some drugs like targretin are not available, so our armamentarium is, is very limited. That is, but there's also opportunity, you know, because there are a lot of patients who are in high need of treatment that we could be a good center in Canada for clinical trials in CTCL if we can get companies interested in drug development. I think you know, knowing more about genetics and knowing more about biomarkers of the response, we may be successful attracting clinical trials of, let's say, immune checkpoint inhibitors in CTCL. Well, if you can keep the bright students in your lab, like it sounds uh, you've been able to, um, the future uh, looks good for us. So. I have been very lucky. Thank you. Yeah, well, thank you very much for taking the time. Uh, I look forward to uh, reading more about the, the T-cell, and uh, I really do appreciate your taking uh, the time to explain these things to us. Thank you. My pleasure. Dr. Niedeshki is a professor of dermatology at the University of Alberta, where he's the director of the Division of Dermatology and leads the Multidisciplinary Cutaneous Lymphoma Clinic. Dr. Niedeshki's work has been supported by the Canadian Dermatology Foundation. The main focus of his research is the T-cell, and as you can see from the article that we just reviewed, he has new and evolving concepts at his fingertips, and the discussion was really enlightening for me. Remember that this article, Immunotherapy for Cutaneous T-Cell Lymphoma, Current Landscapes and Future Developments, will be free on the JCMS website at jcms.ca for the next three weeks so that you may review it at your leisure. Well, that's it for this episode of JCMS Author Interviews Podcast. I hope you enjoyed your time with us. I hope you're subscribing and you won't miss future issues and I hope that you share this with your colleagues and on uh, social media. 
I'm Kirk Barber. Thank you again for listening. And until next time, be good to each other.